got a question recently on our Patreon about what we spend our Patreon money on. And, uh, I mean, Which, I'll, how dare you ask that, by the way? No, it's okay to ask it, and I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what I spent it on this month. Uh, I spent it on uh, groceries. The, the, well, the boys are here. We got uh, we got uh, two iced Americanos. Uh, that, that's true. We are spending it on coffee. That's right. Frivolous purchases like that. Uh-huh. And also non-frivolous purchases like, um, you know, this incredible gift idea, which uh, I've already placed an order for this, which I'm going to give to my co-host. I assume you've seen it already. Oh, goodness. Okay, so what Luke is showing me is that The Flash and Black Adam are being released together on a special 4K Blu-ray disc. That's right. It's like the Pink Floyd release where they put out Piper at the Gates of Dawn and Saucer Full of Secrets as one thing, and they called it a nice pair. Here's a nice pair volume two. Best gift idea there is, your two favorite movies on 4K in one place, The Flash and Black Adam. What I think's funny about The Flash and Black Adam on one set is I actually think Warner Brothers did that on purpose. I think they're in on the joke because they have they have a new regime at Warner, they have a new regime at DC. James Gunn, the director of many films, now the head of the DC wing of Warner Brothers. You know, he has a whole new plan. He's wiping the slate clean and The Flash and Black Adam both represent the last desperate gasps of the previous regime. And I think <laughs> I think he personally probably said, "Wouldn't it be funny if we put these both on one disc like a tomb, like a tomb?" <laughs> and then at the end of the day it's like people are just still buying it. So it comes to the same well, thing. Well, win-win, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, this is a good preface to something I wanted to talk about, which is, I mean, I guess it's kind of connected to the whole, you know, Barbieheimer discourse, which I have not seen either of these movies. Okay, I want to be clear about that. Will has. I've seen them both, Yeah, yes. apparently they're both good. Uh, we may talk about them in more detail, you know, when both the co-hosts of the show have actually seen them. But I just have to say, I feel like I am not going to be able to see either of these movies now without bringing so much to them that I've just absorbed sort of biosmosis like involuntarily like I have seen so much discourse about both of these movies that I feel like I won't just be able to see them behind a veil of ignorance you know as movies are meant to be seen well, I definitely sympathize with that. I often worry about going to see movies, especially new and current movies for that reason. But I don't know. I'm always able to, you know, turn my brain off, you know, pop some corn, big screen, big sound. Love it. For example, I mean, we saw Sound of Freedom like last week and there's a lot of discourse around that. And I was able to just, you know, sit back and enjoy yeah, all had the, a, had a great, we the, both the had child a, abuse. Yeah, we had a, both a great time learning about a very important issue and also doing activism against one of the world's greatest evils just by uh, going to the see the movie but no look will are you aware of this uh i mean <laughs> have you been following the whole sort of sub sub branch of the barbenheimer discourse with this uh this photo fucking justin trudeau tweeted out I am aware of this. So for people who don't know, the newly single, you know, back on the market, <laughs> ladies, uh, Prime Minister of Canada, went to see both of the summer's two big movies, yet not Sound of Freedom. It's interesting. <laughs> what, what, what is he afraid of? You know, it's interesting the elites don't want you to see that one. Uh, anyway, he went to see both movies. And I recall in the first one, he said he's on Team Barbie and it was him with his son and they were both wearing pink. Mm-hmm. But then he also, you know, in the interest of reaching across the aisle. Well, I think he even tweeted to balance it out. He went with his daughter to see Oppenheimer, right? Right, right. Yeah. Now, this drove me insane for a number of reasons. Um, I mean, look, like anything like this, as you would expect, completely unhinged right wing reaction. And then, you know, we've been through this a million times now. This is just what our entire culture and media cycle. This is how. Can, it can I now. ask? I didn't follow but, it closely. What are the right wing people upset at? I don't know. It's like they're. I mean, just. <laughs> Do you do you really have to ask? I mean, yeah, you can, kind of. It's like with you Barbie. Can imagine it. Imagine imagine Jordan Peterson's reaction to like a picture of Justin Trudeau wearing pink, okay. you know, with okay. his son at the Barbie movie. Okay, right. It's it. all I that kind it. of stuff, right? I think the right there in certain corners, you know, the Ben Shapiro's of the world, their reaction to the Barbie movie has been. I mean, they're really just showing how easily triggered they are by something like this. I mean, the Barbie movie comes along. You well, know, th- this is kind of what I wanted to talk about. I mean, I. I think that, yes, that's true. But I mean, the thing that struck me about this whole, I don't know, this whole discourse is how, I mean, it it seems like a throwback to kind of a, I don't know, a 2014 to 2016 era of Twitter. 
It seems like that, at least in kind of the basic structure of just like different cultural factions sort of triggering each other back and forth and making content out of it. But then also it seems very kind of like half-hearted. Like I don't feel there's a lot of zeal to this anymore. I mean, I could just be imagining that or that could be actually like me projecting my own, you know, wish for all of this kind of thing to be exhausted and my own exhaustion with it, like onto all of this. But I mean, that Ben Shapiro thing was like that just where he tweeted that picture was like, oh, my producers made me go to the movie. And then he's standing next to a cardboard cutout of Margot Robbie as Barbie, which among other things just underscores like what a tiny little old man Ben Shapiro is. And it's like, I'm sorry, buddy, your producers didn't drag you to it. Ben Shapiro is like, he heads like a minor sort of, well, it's not even a minor, it's a multi-million dollar media empire. It has so much money, it was going to offer Steven Crowder and his, with his 50,000 subscriber YouTube channel, a $50 million contract. If his producers were involved, it was probably at the equivalent of like a corporate pitch meeting where it was like, okay, Ben, uh, we're going to send you to the Barbie movie. You're going to tweet what's supposed to be an authentic photo of you, like at it. And oh, my producers dragged me here. We're going to dress you as Ken and it's going to trigger the libs and they're going to do a video that's going to go viral where it's like Ben Shapiro destroys the Barbie movie for 45 minutes straight. It's all kayfabe at this point. This is all like a routine. Yeah, when I saw that photo of Ben Shapiro by the poster for the Barbie movie, I saw the sort of nightmare vision of what we could become, you know, dutifully going to see the movies that we know we'll hate (laughs) and pretending to be shocked and outraged by them. Like with 10 degrees difference, we could have posted a picture of us outside the Sound of Freedom theater being like, (laughs) oh my God, our producers who don't exist (laughs) made us go see this movie. And we were shocked, shocked that there was gay gambling in this establishment. (laughs) Maybe it's just a difference of affect. I don't know what, but I think there is a difference. Well, I think the other difference, which is a pretty major one, is like if our entire business model was not premised on like trying to watch things and think about them and have something to say, but actually what it was about was creating a whole terrain on which there could be like rent seeking for selling gold and Bitcoin and like (laughs) sugar pills marketed as fitness supplements and that kind of shit. I don't know. If we get to that stage, you, the listener, or you can indict us for this, but I think we're not quite there yet. Speaking of which, patreon.com slash Michael and us, bonus episode every week, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I want to come back to Justin Trudeau here because of course, what I just said about Ben Shapiro absolutely applies to Justin Trudeau as well. Do you think Justin Trudeau and like the whole staff that's attached to him, like the professional photographers and spin people and stuff that work in the PMO, do you not think every photo that goes out of Justin Trudeau is like curated and calculated? Like, of course it is. Justin Trudeau's entire political brand is being like, look at me. I'm the relatable, used to be like exciting new young leader. Now it's like the relatable dad, recently divorced, recently single as of a week ago. You know, insofar as Justin Trudeau's brand is even political anymore, you know, in the last two elections, it's just been like, look at me. I'm the only thing standing between you and fascism. So, you know, don't be mad about all the times I did blackface or the fact that my entire political project has been a sham since 2015 or whatever. So much of Justin Trudeau's entire shtick has not even really been political. It's just been all about Instagrammable relatability. It's, you know, 2012, you know, upworthy style content made sentient and attached to the dying corpse of corporate liberalism. And this is what made the media cycle that ensued from this so absolutely maddening to me. And I guess it sort of began actually before Trudeau tweeted the photo. It began with the news of his divorce, where, you know, there was very quickly this wave of people, you know, many of them who worked in the media saying, leave his family out of it. His family aren't, you know, they don't don't hold elected office. You know, they're not they're not part of this at all. And, you know, this talking point was sort of repeated when there was a reaction to this, you know, Barbie photo with his son, where it's like, oh, you know what? A man can't just like go to a movie with his son without you reacting to it. And it's like the problem with the right wing reaction to this was not that people reacted to it. The problem is that the stuff they were saying was completely unhinged. The problem was with the substance of it, not its existence. Justin Trudeau's family has been part of his political brand, and it is a brand. He is a walking brand that his family has been a part of since day one. Go back and look at all of the magazine profiles of like him and his now ex-wife Sophie, all the stories of their courtship and things like that. Go back and find the press conference where I can't remember which of the many Justin Trudeau post blackface press conferences it was where he brought out his son, uh, presumably to sort of make it harder for reporters to ask tough questions. The main media reaction to this has not seemed to me to be particularly coherent. 
one minute, Justin Trudeau's family is a part of his political brand. It's very important and we can talk about it, but only when the contents of those conversations are wholesome. The choices are you can consume this as wholesome internet content or you could be an unhinged right-wing lunatic who gets triggered by seeing like a man wearing pink or going to see the Barbie movie with his son. You're not allowed to just think, well, okay, what if this is all branding and it's completely cynical? And I don't know, this whole thing has made me realize like I am just so sick of the discourse. I do think that in an earlier era of the internet, and by an earlier era, I mean as recently as like five to ten years ago, there was some, I don't know, zeal behind some of this. These cycles of action and reaction, or, you know, perhaps it's all just reaction at this point. They hadn't been repeated so many times that they'd just become reflex. Their underlying grammar had not been so absorbed and kind of systematized by, you know, marketing departments and comms professionals that it had become entirely machine-like yet. But that's what it feels to me at this point. It is a cycle of action and reaction, and all of which, by the way, is not action and reaction in the real world. It's just posts. That's what we're talking about here. And the ideological differences at this point, in some ways, are actually debatable to me. Because whether you're talking about the most kind of cynical and dogmatic forms of social liberalism or the kind of world-weary, misanthropic social conservatism that, I don't know, uh, you know, exists on like Jordan Peterson Twitter or whatever, they're just kind of like mirror images of each other. Both have converged on a style of politics that is almost entirely about affect, and the only difference is what set of cultural signifiers you plug in. And even there, I think in many ways, the differences are becoming increasingly hard to identify beyond the level of aesthetics. Conservatives, I feel like, used to complain. They used to they used to mock liberals for the language of identity politics or the language of trauma, the language of therapy, the language of self-help culture. And you look at what Jordan Peterson does, and it's literally all just that. It's bodies and spaces except for people who are just, you know, revanchist and anti-feminist. And again, the main difference is whether, you know, the presentation is woke or earnest on the one hand or whether it's based trademark symbol on the other. And yeah, at the end of the day, all of it is just posts. So much of it is just like curated at this point. Marketing people, you know, particularly in entertainment years ago, seemed to grasp that, you know, hey, you don't need the reaction to a film or similar cultural product to be positive or negative. It can be both. And so much the better if it's like a cycle of people going back and forth, back and forth. That whole thing you said about The Flash and Black Adam, having them together as a nice pair. It's like, oh, yeah, the executives behind that are in on the joke. I think you're exactly right. Right. And it just underscores how pointless all of this <laughs> all of this is, because at the end of the day, all of it is just about posting and consumption. Well, it's time for plugs and housekeeping. First of all, I know you're all dreaming of a chance to see me, Will Sloan, in person. Well, you'll get that chance. Tuesday, August 15th at the Fox Theater, I am presenting Ed Wood's Glen or Glenda on the big screen, folks. Where's the Fox Theater, Will? It's in the beautiful Beaches neighborhood of Toronto. So if you're, if you're in the downtown, if you're in the West End, you will have to take a streetcar ride, but I promise you it will be worth it. <laughs> and if you're one of the majority of our listeners who does not reside in Canada, uh, check out the Porter flights. They're pretty cheap this time of year. <laughs> There's no reason not to come, honestly. Like if you're in Hamilton, if you're in Kitchener, if you're in Dubai, just come over because this is your chance to see your old friend Will. Uh, there will be a special short film in addition. Uh, it'll be Kenneth Anger's Fireworks. Local Toronto resident Justin DeClue will be Selling Gold Ninja video Blu-rays. And speaking of plugs for podcasts, like I said earlier, patreon.com slash Michael and us. You know it. You love it. $5 a month. Extra episode every week. You guys have heard this a million times, so I won't bend your ear too much. But I will just say that our most recent Patreon episode delved into Star Trek The Motion Picture. Is it boring or is it actually secretly good? The answer may surprise you. In addition, please rate, review us. It helps. Uh, Luke reads them. Uh, the good ones he sends to me. 
There's one other bit of housekeeping, which uh, will mainly be of interest to those of you who are on Patreon. But of course, once a month, we have our Superdelegate episode where those of you who contribute, it's about 100 of you now, who contribute at the 10 Yankee dollar a month uh, Superdelegate level, get to nominate films and then vote in a runoff and choose a film for us to build an episode around. The latest vote for that concluded recently, and uh, we were planning to do the episode this week. Uh, but we didn't feel like it, so we're doing it next week <laughs> yeah, instead. It's, it's, it's we, coming we next are, week. We are doing it. Now, uh, one last bit of housekeeping, the best bit of housekeeping. Last week, we talked about the hit new film, Sound of Freedom. And uh, I think it's fair to say that it's lingered with us in a very bad way. I didn't think that anyone, I mean, it's already, this movie's already come up once today, but I didn't think any film that we'd seen in the last couple years would stick with me as noxiously as The Flash did. Turns out I was wrong because The Sound of Freedom is a, a close contender. There's a lot that bothers me about that movie, but I've been particularly creepy up by the sort of commodification of children in that movie, not just the atrocities it depicts, you know, the sex trafficking industry, which obviously those scenes are upsetting and they're intended to be. But the general attitude in the movie of like these little darlings, they're so innocent to save the these pure, these innocent beings because they are God's children are not for sale because because you own them. And uh, they're, they're your children who are not for sale. And if they become for sale, um, they'll get blemished and their market value will come down. I actually sort of weirdly interpret that as like a, a sort of subtext of the film. I mean, everything about that film is so insane. I mean, especially the fact that the former, you know, mob guy, the guy from the CD Underworld. What's that actor's name? He's kind of the uh, only Bill, one. Bill Camp, who's pretty good yeah, in the he's, film. Yeah, he's honestly kind of, arguably the only person who's actually doing any acting in the in the film, really. But his whole backstory being that, like, oh, yeah, I accidentally paid a sex worker who I thought was 25 and she turned out to be 14. And, yeah, I noticed because I saw she had, like, a Hello Kitty tattoo or something. You know, and that's that's when I realized, like, I had to devote my entire life to rescuing children from sex trafficking. And it's like, the film never goes back to that. The main character, whose whole thing is that he's this, you know, cop who is just ruthlessly, like, I'm going to go against my department. I'm going to fly halfway across the world and go into, like, a pedophile-held territory and not be with my family because I, I have to purge the world of this evil. That guy, he doesn't ask any questions. There's no follow-up. There's no kind of like, oh, hey, wait a minute. Like, why why am I working with this guy? Why is, why is this the guy I have to go to in order to build the massive, like, fire festival, but for child molesters that I'm going to use to catch all the bad guys? It's, I mean, it's insane. Well, as the great <laughs> critic and filmmaker Luke Moulet wrote in the pages of Cahiers du Cinema about Samuel Fuller on the subject of fascism, only the perspective of someone who has been tempted is of interest. Uh, and I think we see that in the uh, child molestation of, of Sound of Freedom. But no, seriously, folks, I think what I was getting at earlier is it's not a movie that fundamentally respects children as like autonomous beings, uh, individual beings of intelligence and anything other than just these like pure little uh, things that you own and that <laughs> and that if things go wrong, they can get sold to the wrong owners uh, who uh, hurt their value as because their value is that they're innocent and pure. Um, and I, I find that upsetting and weird and strange, the way that the movie sort of fetishizes the innocence of children. Yeah, there, there are honestly things I'd like to say about this movie that I, I don't think I should put on mic. But if you've been unfortunate enough to have actually seen it like we have, I suspect you're thinking them too. It's an evil and awful film. <laughs> now, we're not just bringing this up for no reason. It's been in the news and we're going to talk about that in a second. But I do just want to say one more thing about it, which is another reason it stayed in my head is because I'm actually angry and a little bit upset at how boring it was. A movie should not be simultaneously so viscerally unpleasant to watch and so boring. I mean, we talked last week about how, you know, the director or the writer has been, you know, saying like pro QAnon stuff on podcasts and things like that. Not just just anyone. I believe it's the star Jim Caviezel who has been uh, fully Q-pilled. Right. Who was also in the thin red line yeah in in better days also a jesus from the passion of the christ uh, we didn't we didn't mention that. but i mean this w movie would have been so much better if it w and so much more entertaining if it was just a fully black-pilled QAnon movie i was sitting there being like okay this is unpleasant but i know the payoff is going to be like oh yeah the jim caviezel cop he's actually an agent of the deep state or he's going to discover that this is a deep state conspiracy and he's going to unmask it no there's none of that the film is actually a very 
cynical in that way and that the people who are behind it were clearly thinking about marketing. They wanted liberal film critics to write uh, some of the things that they are writing to the effect that like, hey, look, I'm not a, you know, Trump MAGA right wing evangelical, but I think uh, child sex trafficking is bad. And this movie raises attention to it. So Owen Gleiberman, yeah. <laughs> shame on you. <laughs> but I don't know, it's like it's too much to ask that a reactionary film like this can't just be like a completely insane like carnivalesque spectacle like that is all i ask so yeah the movie has been in the news and many listeners have raised this to us uh i'll read the headline in salon a sound of freedom investor has been charged with child kidnapping so fabian marta was one of the crowd funders of the movie was arrested july 21st by st louis police this is something that detractors of this movie of which there are many are, are quite uh, eager to point out a lot of people want our take on this and look i get it this is an evil noxious movie when you find out that one of the people who invested in it has been arrested for alleged child kidnapping uh the very crime that the movie yeah i mean the headlines write themselves yeah yeah if you want to relish that, um, fair enough. But I will just say, it says in the Salon article, and I'm quoting, Marta is one of thousands who raised funds for Sound of Freedom distributor and producer Angel Studios' marketing campaign. His name appears in the film's credits, alongside the more than 6,678 other individuals who contributed to the crowdfunding effort. So, I mean, unfortunately, I don't really think this discredits the movie. It's one of those things, if a million people buy Lolita and one of them turns out to be a pet, I don't think that discredits Nabokov either. Um, the movie, though. So the Sound of Freedom discredits The Sound of Freedom, okay? <laughs> now, on to better films. You know, Luke, I've been, I've been playing around with this idea. Tell me what you think of this. The medium is the message. Ugh. Yes, that's right, folks. On this episode, we are talking about David Cronenberg's 1983 classic, one of the great Canadian films, Videodrome. I think that massive doses of Videodrome signal will ultimately produce and control hallucination to the point that it will change human reality. Soon, his visions will coalesce and become uncontrollable flesh. Videodrome is seducing Max Wren. Come to me now. Come to Nikki. And Max Wren can do nothing to stop it. What makes you think I need help? None of our test subjects has returned to normality. Television can change your mind. Videodrome will change your body. This was David Cronenberg's last movie under the Canadian tax shelter system that made his earlier transgressive films possible. Uh, it's an interesting thing, by the way, if you don't know about it. The tax shelter era in Canadian filmmaking lasted from 1975 to 1982, and it was spurred by legislation that made it so that if you invested money in movies, you could deduct 100% of that investment from your taxable income. Because it was virtually impossible for Canadian movies to make a profit at home, what with the population being so small and theaters being dominated by American product, these producers were also encouraged to make movies that could be exported and make money all around the world. And what that translated to was seven years of Canadian movies that looked like American exploitation films. We have the tax shelter to thank for such films as Black Christmas, My Bloody Valentine, Meatballs, Porky's, Prom Night, and of course the early films of David Cronenberg. These are some of the better known examples. And you know, there was a lot of schlock and trash made in that time. I say that with affection, you know, I'm as big a fan of screwballs as anyone. But David Cronenberg was a figure who in this era came under particular scrutiny. I think we've all heard the story about how his landlord kicked him out of his apartment because he cast the adult film actress Marilyn Chambers in Rabid. His films were also vilified in the right-wing Canadian press as being examples of, you know, your, your tax dollars at work. You know, look at this. These, these people get this big tax write-off so they can make these disgusting films like Shivers. Did, did uh, I mean, did any of Cronenberg's films get, you know, Canada Council grants or like public 
public funding for the arts or anything like that? I couldn't tell you specifically which ones have, but I mean, I, I, I think they have. I mean, certainly, certainly at least some of the later ones, like I'm pretty sure Crash or Spider or some of those later ones did, you know, in the telefilm system. Adam Agoyan is another filmmaker who I think has run up against periodic opposition from the prudes and the blue noses. I raise all this because I think it's relevant that Cronenberg is somebody who has been censored and hated by people from all across the political spectrum, particularly early in his career. And all of this is relevant in Videodrome, which, among other things, deals with that. Uh, I have a quote here from the interview book Cronenberg on Cronenberg, one of the essential books about him, where he says, If you're going to do art, you have to explore certain aspects of your life without regard to a political position or stance. With Videodrome, I wanted to posit the possibility that a man exposed to violent imagery would begin to hallucinate. I wanted to see what it would be like, in fact, if what the censors were saying would happen did happen. What would it feel like? What would it lead to? But there is the suggestion that the technology involved in Videodrome is specifically designed to create violence in a person. We know that by the use of electrodes in certain areas of your brain, you can trigger off a violent, fearful response without regard to other stimulants. So all of this is relevant because Cronenberg has been and can be accused of having a, a bit of a reactionary streak at times. Also a filmmaker who revels in transgression and extreme violent and sexual imagery and ideas. And so in Videodrome, one of the jumping off points for him was saying, okay, well, what if my critics are right? What if violence on screen and ugly sexuality on screen really does cause harm? Well, there's a lot that can be said about this movie. And if you don't mind body horror, this is one I'd certainly recommend watching if you haven't seen it. There are very few films like this. And the only other ones I can think of were also directed by David Cronenberg. Videodrome, I think, is uh, is certainly one of his best. In any case, uh, it's an unusual film, and I think the easiest way in might be to talk about the plot and kind of see where it takes us. So one of the main settings of Videodrome is a fictionalized, thinly fictionalized Toronto TV station called Civic TV. Now, the channel seems to be based on City TV, which is one of, I don't know, three or four channels I was able to watch growing up, which is pretty much just your standard local news and entertainment channel. You know, I think they had episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation that I watched as a kid. You know, they also had the news, the weather, uh, reality like TV. channel six or seven on the dial. That's right. And uh, and I'm sure you also know that late at night... Well, it would be 11 p.m. would be Ed the Sock, and then, it, uh, I don't know, after that... There'd be Sex TV. You remember that? Or was it called Real Sex? What was that show called? Some, that, something that, like that. That awful, like, documentary show that... It had a title like <laughs> Sex TV, you know, not particularly good... It was like a program about like weird fetishes and stuff and then after that they would just have like softcore pornography into right. the wee hours of the morning so civic tv and videodrome is based on that and i think is it also is it the case that in the 70s city tv or a similar station in toronto actually did have some like more disturbing programming on in, in you know the wee hours of the morning well i believe and i'm not sure where cronenberg said this but it's been widely suggested that the movie the specific movie that he saw on city tv that inspired this was a very violent and disturbing exploitation film called Emmanuel in America, directed by the great Joe D'Amato. Uh, by the way, another uh, Will Sloan recommends movie. Uh, it's out now on a beautiful new Blu-ray from uh, Severin. Let me guess, you wrote the liner notes, I'm sure. I wish I wrote the liner notes. <laughs> An incredible, uh, queasy, bad dream of a film. Um, but anyway, apparently he saw that one, which, among other things, has a simulated snuff footage in it. And and uh, Cronenberg, I think, said to himself, oh, wow, that's a weird thing to see on TV. <laughs> and, and that inspired some of what we see in this film. That's right. So Max Wren is the main character of Videodrome. He's played by James Woods in a very Hell good performance. Yes. Although that being said, I've always liked James Woods' politics more than his acting. <laughs> anyway, James Woods plays Max Wren who is the president of the station and is very interested in finding kind of seedy programming to broadcast after dark. 
there's a guy who works for him at the station, a kind of operator named Harlan, who has a little room where he uh, intercepts bootleg satellite signals and that kind of thing. And he shows him something he calls Videodrome, which appears to be coming from somewhere in Southeast Asia, possibly Malaysia. And it's basically snuff. It's images of torture and murder and brutalization, that kind of stuff. Now, Max Wren, being the seedy guy that he is, uh, he sees dollar signs and he wants to find out more about this and he wants to pirate it and put it on TV. Now, there's an important early scene where Max goes on a TV talk show where the other guest is Nikki Brand, played by Debbie Harry. And they're debating sex and violence in the media. Nikki is introduced as a sort of archetypal second wave feminist, a real uh, Susan G. Cole. But she melts instantly at Max's glib charm. Your television station offers its viewers everything from softcore pornography to hardcore violence. Why? Well, it's a matter of economics, Rena. We're uh, small. In order to survive, we have to give people something they can't get anywhere else. And, uh, and we do that. But don't you feel such shows contribute to a social climate of violence and sexual malaise? And do you care? Certainly I care. <laughs> I care enough, in fact, to give my viewers uh, a, a harmless outlet for their, their fantasies and their frustrations. And as far as I'm concerned, that's a socially positive act. What about it, Nikki? Is it socially positive? Well, I think we live in overstimulated times. We crave stimulation for its own sake. We gorge ourselves on it. We always want more, whether it's tactile, emotional, or sexual. And I think that's bad. <laughs> then why did you wear that dress? Sorry? That dress. <laughs> it's very stimulating. And it's red. You know what Freud would have said about that dress. And he would have been right. I admit it. I live in a highly excited state of overstimulation. Listen, I'd really like to take you off to dinner tonight. This scene is unbelievable. It's so absurd that, you know, the absurdity has to be intentional because if you're seeing this film for the first time, you're watching this and you're thinking, okay, so the tension of this movie is going to be that you got this kind of, you know, seedy TV station president played by James Woods. I don't know, is maybe a hero or anti-hero. And, you know, he's going to be up against the forces of sort of prudish censoriousness represented by this sort of stereotyped kind of, yeah, feminazi who wants to take his nasty and misogynist programming off the air. Uh, but no, no, that's how the panel is set up. You know, the host asks him, he gives a sort of, uh, you know, glib response to it. There's a little bit of back and forth. And then as the interviewer talks to uh, a third person on the panel, a guy named Professor Oblivion, who is not on stage. He's a kind of a Marshall McLuhan stand-in who only ever appears in this movie from a TV screen. As the interviewer is talking to Professor Oblivion, you can just hear Max Wren sweet talking Nikki Brand. And then at the end of the interview, he's just like, well, uh, maybe I'd like to buy you dinner. And yeah, she just completely melts. And soon after they begin a relationship, it's completely absurd. But again, in a way that has to be intentional. Well, I suppose so. Although, to be honest, this specific scene is one that didn't sit as well with me on this viewing as it has in the past, <laughs> I guess. Um, it does come across, at least at first glance, like Cronenberg, you know, having a kind of vengeful fantasy against all the sort of uh, more liberal, censorious women who have been his detractors in the past. Yeah, it's like a pejorative stereotype of a... Of a feminazi who just needs, you know, just needs Amanda, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In Cronenberg on Cronenberg, the author, Chris Rodley, writes that she was merely the latest in a line of predominantly rapacious female creations. As with Cronenberg's obsession with the male-female opposition, in which difference can slip imperceptibly into the other, his determination and desire to be free of political constraints and considerations in imagining his women and their sexuality would continue to offend. And I'll just read a quote from Cronenberg, where instead of responding to the criticism of this character specifically, but also all his female characters at this time, says, uh, I'm male, and my fantasies and my unconscious are male. I think I give reasonable expression to the female part of me, but I still think that I'm basically a heterosexual male. If I let loose the social bonds to see where my sexuality is at its darkest and its most insane and most amoral, not immoral, if I'm going to get into scenes of bondage and torture, I'll show a female instead of a male. So, in other words, he's sort of absolved himself of any social responsibility in his uh, depiction of women. He's basically saying, I'm letting my subconscious roam free, and uh, this is what it comes up with, and uh, love it or leave it. 
But I think he gets a little disingenuous at times. There's another quote here where he says, as a creator of characters, I believe I have the freedom to create a character who is not meant to represent all characters. I can create a woman as a character who does not represent all women. If I depict a character as a middle-class Dumbo, why does this have to mean that I think all women are middle-class Dumbos? If I show Debbie Harry as a character who burns her breast with a cigarette, does that mean that I'm suggesting that all women want to burn their breasts with cigarettes? That's juvenile. I mean, you can see it's a little disingenuous where it's like, well, the the, the first of those two quotes, I think, is more compelling than the second. The second seems uh, incredibly evasive to me. And I mean, also, when you well, when you make the brood and you make video, I was going to make rabid. Right. I mean, I was going to bring up the brood because, I mean, the brood is a great film. I mean, you know, I think in many ways is a film I find more disturbing than video drum. Video drum is a movie with all kinds of shocking images in it, but it's never one. You know, even when I saw it age 19 or 20 uh, as a film studies student, I I never, never found it particularly upsetting. The, the brood, which, you know, is also in many ways about the body, but is, I think, more about how trauma kind of manifests itself on the body and how it's kind of transmissible and things like that. I mean, it's a great film, but I mean, similarly, it's a film with a male protagonist and the principal disruption of equilibrium in the movie comes from his crazy ex-wife, who is extremely jealous of his burgeoning relationship with another woman. Well, I hate to keep quoting him, but he has just one more quote here that I think is relevant here. He says, I would never censor myself. To censor myself, to censor my fantasies, to censor my unconscious would devalue myself as a filmmaker. It's like telling a surrealist not to dream. And I mean, he's got he's got a point insofar as he understands the value of sort of having a lack of filter and just putting all his most evil and, uh, you know, deranged thoughts on a slab. And there's a lot of value to not imposing that kind of censorship on yourself. Robin Wood, the great Marxist film scholar, one of his... um, Principal detractors, I suppose you could say. Principal detractors. He wrote that Cronenberg's work has value for me precisely in that it crystallizes some of our society's most negative attitudes to physicality, to sexuality, to women, to all ideas of progress. The existence of the films helps make such traits accessible to examination. And I mean, you don't have to agree with uh, Robin Wood's, you know, rather extreme statement there to sort of see the value in what Robin Wood and in fact, see the sort of kinship between what Robin Wood is saying and what Cronenberg is saying. There's value to sort of putting something unfiltered on a screen and seeing what it says. I mean, I think where I part company with Cronenberg is the sort of absolving himself of any responsibility to, you know, take responsibility for what it says about him, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it's all well and good to say, well, my creative process involves, you know, drawing things from, you know, the most buried parts of my id. But at the same time, you can't then say what I'm drawing has no kind of wider social valence. It gets dangerously close to that kind of, you know, the the laziest form of art criticism, which is when you say like, well, isn't all art is really subjective, which is just a way of saying like, you can't do criticism. And to criticize it is censorship. That's right. By criticizing it, you're saying I can't say this. Nonetheless, I think both uh, what you've quoted from Cronenberg and what you've quoted from Robin Wood is a useful way of thinking about this film. And I think it's fair to say that uh, all or most of the female characters in the movie, they all kind of seem like they're extensions of the James Woods character's psyche. I mean, we talked about the Nikki Brand talk show scene, but there's, I mean, there's an even more ridiculous scene later on. And we will come back to the plot and tell you a little more about what's going on in the movie in a moment. But there's an even more ridiculous scene later on where one of Ren's colleagues from the TV station, one of his female colleagues, comes to his home to drop something off or something. And by this point, he started hallucinating and he hallucinates striking her across the face he hasn't done this in real life but then he's just sort of apoplectically apologizing and just generally being weird and instead of being like okay I'm in this like weird guy's apartment and I'm just like gonna go home and get the hell out of here she's like oh do you want me to stay I mean it's like a plot drawn straight from softcore pornography it's completely ridiculous And in a way that works in service to the movie because so much of it and so much of the ambiguity that it's exploring has to do with what's going on inside the mind of the James Woods character. And I suppose with that, we should uh, we should carry on with the plot. Max, intrigued by the Videodrome broadcasts, seeks to find their provenance. Equally interested is Nikki, the Debbie Harry character. 
who has quickly entered into a sadomasochistic sexual relationship with Max. She loves the broadcasts, goes to audition for them, never returns. And importantly, what she loves about the broadcast is that, you know, she's the one before Max who says, you know, I think this is real. So when she goes to audition for it, what she's saying is not just like, I want to be on this program. She's saying, I want to be on this program so that I can have these things literally done to me. You know, if there is a defense to be made of Cronenberg's depiction of this second wave feminist archetype as, you know, deep down. She's just a sadomasochist. uh, You know, I mean, I do think there's something to be said for the idea that Eros is a zone where the intellect and ideology can sometimes melt away. It can sometimes be a completely separate space where one can become a very different person. You know, desire is political, but that doesn't necessarily mean it aligns with our stated politics. It is not synonymous with ego and superego. There's a reason why we distinguish between those things. So Nikki goes to Pittsburgh, where it turns out the broadcasts are actually coming from. She goes there to audition, doesn't come back. Max, as Will said, uh, wants to find the provenance of these broadcasts. He wants to track down the people behind them. And this is where we're introduced to another character, that of Masha. Uh, I find this character very interesting and very funny because the film presents her as a sort of purveyor of softcore pornography, but yet she's also the person he goes to to be like, okay, where are these snuff films coming from and how do I get my hands on them. And the way that uh, she's imagined by the film is, I don't know, very interesting. Like she's a purveyor of softcore pornography. Her biggest scene occurs in some kind of like Middle Eastern restaurant where there's people belly dancing. And for some reason, she talks like someone who should be looking into a crystal ball. (laughs) There's a very particular vibe in Cronenberg's movies that is especially potent here. It's funny, when I think of, you know, the great directors, Cronenberg is somebody who I've often thought of as, you know, it's more about what he depicts than the way he depicts it. I don't necessarily associate him with, like, fancy camera angles or ostentatious editing or that sort of thing. But I don't know, maybe I need to reconsider that because the particular mise-en-scene of his movies, the way he uses Toronto, of course, we've talked about before, as a kind of, like, bad dream every city... The way that so many of his characters have this rather heightened acting style, there's something very hypnotic and strange about the ambiance of his movies. Anyway, Masha tells Max that the famous McLuhan-esque media critic Brian Oblivion is aware of Videodrome, knows what it is. In searching for Brian Oblivion, Max finds a homeless shelter that Oblivion Enterprises is operating out of, Brian Oblivion is a sort of Dr. Mabuza-like figure who exists only on TV screens. Well, at a certain point, we figure out that he's actually died at some earlier point, and he's actually just pre-recorded all these broadcasts so he can do interviews and such. And he says, The battle for the mind of North America will be fought in the video arena, the videodrome. The television screen is the retina of the mind's eye. Therefore, the television screen is part of the physical structure of the brain. Therefore, whatever appears on the television screen emerges as raw experience for those who watch it. Um, In other words, uh, that's me talking now, uh, you are what you eat. Right, and of course, at the time Cronenberg made this movie, you know, the television screen, that's the reference point he uses, but it's just meant to be a stand-in for sort of, you know, mass media as a whole. And, you know, if you made this film today, you could make the same movie about, like, you could make Videodrome, but for posts. I was reading a book called The Shape of Rage, the films of David Cronenberg, published in 1983, shortly after this movie was released. Uh, edited by no less than Piers Handling. And it has a number of essays, including that one I cited by Robin Wood. There was an essay by the former Toronto Star film critic Jeff Pavere, where he compares Videodrome with another 1983 release, The King of Comedy. And he finds kinship in both movies in depicting television as the great leveler. He writes, capable not only of swallowing dog food and nuclear war in the same gulp, but of spewing it all back as part of an unceasing uniform flow. To the box and to those who watch it, it's all the same stew. Now, thinking about what Pavir is saying here is, you know, just as Rupert Pupkin is Jerry Langford, you know, Rupert Pupkin can go on the TV and get the same laughter from the audience as Jerry Langford gets. There's some kinship to when you look at your Twitter stream now and there's a kind of non-stop 
outrage cycle over whether it's the Ukrainian war or whether it's, uh, you know, Woody Harrelson wearing a Robert F. Kennedy yeah, hat or, or, or Trudeau going to the Barbie. Right, movie. exactly. And, and, and leveling is exactly the word to use. It, you know, it's a leveling or a flattening of all things. It becomes very, very difficult to kind of qualitatively distinguish or, or ascribe moral weight or importance or even just attention to any one thing in a way that feels proportionate or rational. So ultimately what you have is just this very oversaturated, you know, media and information environment where there's a kind of constant pursuit of novelty that itself ultimately just kind of, you know, warps our perceptions and leaves us in a perpetual state of confusion and overstimulation, which is very much what happens in this movie. You can't say Videodrome isn't in some way about sex and sexuality because, I mean, it so obviously is. There's so much sexualized imagery in it from, you know, phallic-looking guns to, you know, the famous scene where... Uh, he gets a particular uh, orifice in his stomach. That's right, and, and puts a videotape in it. There's another scene where somebody, like, forces the videotape into his stomach, sort of penetrates him with it. Oh, that's what that... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so obviously this film, which also just on a more basic level has pornography as a central theme, obviously it's preoccupied and concerned with all of those things. But I think ultimately its thesis is more about mass media in general. There's a subtle but very important detail uh, revealed in an interaction with Bianca Oblivion, who unlike uh, her father we do see in the flesh, she's played by Sonia Smits. And she says something to the effect that Videodrome can actually be run through any television transmission, even a test pattern. She says something to the effect of, you know, the imagery of Videodrome is particularly good at this. It's very uh, effective and efficient at, quote, opening the neural networks. But basically, the implication of this scene is that however potent the imagery on screen is, it's just the fact of interacting with it at all that changes the structure of the brain. As the film critic Gary Indiana points out in an essay on the film called The Slithery Sense of reality, violent sexual imagery is just most efficient for opening the neural networks and making viewers receptive, but even the home shopping network will do the trick. This disclosure indicates, among other things, that consciousness is not egregiously reshaped by watching violence on television. It's egregiously shaped by watching anything on television. By the way, just one more line from what Jeff Pavir wrote in that essay comparing The King of Comedy to Videodrome. He wrote, Rupert Pupkin sees television as an arena of legitimization, as not simply the only place that matters, but as the only place of matter, the only place where things are real. That reminded me a little bit of, you know, certain online people that we like to watch who sort of uh, live blog their lives. Uh, frankly, reminds me... Vloggers, those are called. Yeah, that, that that's correct. Yeah, that's right. Frankly, reminds me a little bit of me, you know? Just, uh, I'm also a creature of online, aren't I? But we it do, gave me pause. We do have a number of vloggers we've watched for years, and something that perpetually stumps us about these guys, and something that Will and I are always talking about and speculating about is actually what are the it's not a rhetorical question like what are these guys like once the camera's off and really like they are like Rupert Pupkin in a sense like it's hard to imagine them having interactions that are not mediated through this performance they do uh, in front of the camera I would like to enter into the discussion the movie's depiction of an attitude towards pornography which I think can initially scan as reactionary or prudish. The movie's sort of implication is that, you know, if you watch a lot of uh, ugly, violent, pornographic imagery, it'll rub off on you. Well, it's clearly rubbed off on Cronenberg. <laughs> it's the sort of argument that I'm not very sympathetic to when it's made by, I don't know, probably the sorts of uh, censorious people who were trying to censor Cronenberg. But, you know, Cronenberg, as he says, is using the movie at least partly as a thought experiment of like, okay, well, uh, what if they're right? And I mean, if, if we take the thought experiment, I mean, I think it's fair to say, at least by anecdotal evidence, that the ubiquity of pornography online, particularly extreme pornography, has had a pretty demonstrable impact on people's sexuality. And in fact, has become an extension of many people's sexuality. Certainly there are a lot of people, a lot of younger people, a lot of people of, oh, let's say our generation or younger, who see it online a lot before they actually do it which was not the case with previous generations. 
as I'm saying this, I'm becoming more and more sympathetic to the sort of dystopian vision that Cronenberg is offering here of the frightening ways that these images can become reality. Yeah, I mean, in watching this movie again, and I mean, I've seen it a few times, and in preparing for our discussion of it, what I kept turning back to was whether this movie can be read as kind of, you know, progressive or reactionary. I mean, there's obviously a way of interpreting a film like this and other of Cronenberg's films, particularly from the 70s and 80s, as sort of a an expression of reactionary backlash to the sexual revolution. I'm thinking Shivers in particular. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these films which, you know, you could read as sort of warnings about like when you liberalize sexual culture, sex becomes more available, contraception becomes more available, like sex becomes safer and therefore easier. When you allow, you know, sexual imagery and sexual themes to enter popular culture, whatever, this is what happens. Look how twisted everything becomes. And the thing is, I'm not really sure you can read Videodrome that way, because I think you'd have a hard time arguing that Cronenberg is showing you these images only because he's repulsed by them. He's clearly reveling in them in a way that suggests that repulsion is not the only reason for his depictions. I will just say that this is a current of Cronenberg's work that I do have some trouble with. The ending of Crash, where they're sitting there by the side of the road, their cars crashed, and like the, the thrill is gone. They have to keep upping the ante. The sort of conservative notion in that of like, oh, you know, one hit's never enough. You know, you, you start dabbling in sex and uh, pretty soon you'll be crashing your cars and pretty soon you're going to need to be crashing more cars. Um, it's, it's one that troubles me and that I'm not, if, if it's possible to love a movie and not entirely like what it's saying, that's kind of where I'm at with Crash. Well, it's definitely possible to love a movie and not like what it's saying. And it's been a long time since I've seen Crash, but I don't know if an interpretation as kind of definitive as that can be a applied to Videodrome. And here I want to return to the plot because in the final act of the movie, things get deliberately a little confusing. Max is drawn into an increasingly sprawling and convoluted conspiracy. He sees or hallucinates footage of Oblivion, which well quoted from earlier, where Oblivion explains Videodrome is a socio-political battleground. It represents, you know, war fought for control of the minds of uh, the people of North America. Oblivion and then gets garroted by Nikki. But then after that, Max hallucinates that Nikki is speaking to him. He has various further visions. I don't want to call them hallucinations because... The whole point of this movie is that reality and unreality are not really distinguishable, arguably throughout the whole movie, but certainly in the kind of final act. Bianca, Oblivion's daughter, tells Max that Videodrome carries a signal that causes anyone who sees it to develop malignant brain tumors. She tells him that her father created it as part of a kind of utopian vision of the future, but her father had partners who had more sinister designs for it. Uh, it's completely unclear who those partners were but they seem to have uh, killed Professor Oblivion. Max then is contacted by Videodrome's producer, uh, Barry Kovacs of the Spectacular Optical Corporation, uh, whose office uh, looks like it's somewhere on Young Street not far from uh, the studio where we're recording this. This is an eyeglasses company or optometry clinic that uh, seems to be just a front for like an arms manufacturer or something like that. Turns out that Harlan, Max's operator at the TV station, the guy who intercepts pirate radio and uh, TV signals, he's actually working with the Kovacs Corporation. They're trying to recruit Max. And their purpose is to arrest North America's cultural decline by exposing people to Videodrome and punishing them for their excessive obsessions with sex, violence, and other explicit material. Things get more and more convoluted. There's this attempt to recruit Max to the cause, but then Oblivion's daughter, Bianca, reprograms him, gives him a set of instructions, tells him to declare war on Videodrome. He goes on a rampage, kills various people, and then in the final scene of the film, when Max flees to a boat somewhere in Toronto's Portlands, he speaks to Nikki, or Nikki speaks to him from a TV screen, uh, and tells him that while he's weakened Videodrome, in order to defeat it, he has to, quote, leave the old flesh. Max then sees an image of himself on the TV screen, shooting himself in the head, and in the final famous shot of Videodrome... You've hurt them, but you haven't destroyed them. To do that, you have to go on to the next phase. What phase is that? Your body has already done a lot of changing, but that's only the beginning. The beginning of the new flesh. You have to go all the way now. 
total transformation. Do you think you're ready? I guess I am. How do we do it? To become the new flesh, you first have to kill the old flesh. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to let your body die. Just come to me, Max. Come to Nikki. Long live the new flesh before shooting himself in the head. So one of the reasons it's very difficult to have a sort of definitive political reading of Videodrome is that all of this ambiguity is built in. The last time we talked about Cronenberg's work on Michael and Us, it's in the last year, we talked about his film Existence. And by the end of that film, similar to this one, it's completely unclear where the conspiracy begins or ends. It's completely unclear whose perspective is authentic or rooted in objective reality. Everything is just rooted in technology. And this, to me, is the real thesis of Videodrome. Something else Gary Indiana says in that essay that I quoted from, A Slithering Sense of Unreality, and I agree with this, is Cronenberg's film is intricately woven through with ambivalence about the issues that it raises. I think that's absolutely right. And that's why, to me, the only thesis of Videodrome is that technology, whether you think it's good or bad, is simply an all-encompassing regime. In the third act of the film, when Max is drawn into this conspiracy, we encounter people who have knowledge of Videodrome, but want to use it or wield it for non-sinister ends. We encounter others who, uh, we're told at least, have sinister designs for it. It's impossible to know who's lying and who's telling the truth, and it's impossible for those categories to have any meaning. This is why my reading of the film and its thesis is that technology is just a regime. It has become so pervasive, mass media, and, and by extension technology, has become so pervasive, it's encroached upon every aspect of our lives, not just our lives. I mean, the film depicts this as an encroachment on our bodies as well. There are many scenes of, you know, one, one of the scenes where Max has a gun, you know, the gun is just an extension of his hand. The motto of the TV station, Civic TV, is the one you take to bed with you. Speaking of which, do you check your phone in the morning? No, that's a habit that I managed to uh, rid myself of years ago. I've told you about that. I'm proud of you. It's a key part of any successful morning routine. And I think that, as is the case by the end of Existence, in Videodrome, technology and mass media have become so pervasive and universal that acceding to the regime they've created or resisting it, whatever you do, you're ultimately just reifying it. At the end, when Nikki tells Max, you know, you've weakened Videodrome, but you haven't destroyed it, you have to take the next step in order to destroy it. I mean, what is the next step? It's literally destroying your body. Resistance to the thing, in a way, just mirrors the thing itself. And, you know, I wish I could say something here about Marshall McLuhan, but I'm actually going to turn to another Canadian philosopher because I'm honestly... Well, that's funny. I happen to have Mr. McLuhan (laughs) right here with me. (laughs) Yeah, if only podcasting were like that. But honestly, I've only ever read... I can't say I've ever read more than about 25 pages of McLuhan. So I'm going to turn to someone I'm a lot more familiar with instead, and that's George Grant, who also thought a lot about technology. And George Grant is somebody I've talked about a little bit on the show before. A few years ago, I was invited by the House of Anansi Press to give a talk on the occasion of the release of the posthumous volume Technology and Justice. Now, George Grant was somebody who, I suppose you could say, a a pessimist about modernity. That's a little reductive. But he was somebody who basically thought that technological capitalism was going to lead to a sort of a homogenous global state. And this was basically inevitable, but it was nonetheless very tragic. And he was also a Canadian nationalist who saw a particular vision of Canada, in some ways a kind of 19th century vision of Canada, as this kind of tragically doomed remnant of a kind of pre-modern beauty that was going to be inevitably absorbed into an American-led global mass society. So in some ways, there's an odd tension in George Grant's thinking, because there are people who take a pessimistic view of technological modernity, and then they just become total revanchist about it. To take an obvious and, you know, albeit pretty ridiculous example, you know, there's those like trad Twitter accounts where they're like, remember when society was like this? And then, you know, they show us images of a time that's definitely real when, you know, the entire world was just a mid-sized 16th century Bavarian town or something like that. And, you know, the implication is just remember how beautiful and pure the world was before the pernicious forces of like liberalism and secularism and technology destroyed all this beauty. 
that way of thinking is almost entirely driven itself by the internet, which just lends itself to the thesis that I think Videodrome is giving us and the belief that George Grant had about technology as well, which is just, you know, you can hate this, but if you're like trad activism is happening through Instagram and Twitter, it's kind of been co-opted by the very thing that it's protesting. Anyway, it's impossible for me not to think about George Grant and particularly this book, Technology and Justice. Uh, and I went back through my notes from uh, my House of Anansi talk, and I have these two quotes from an essay of Grant's called Thinking About Technology that immediately came to mind uh, when I watched Videodrome that are emblematic of Grant's thinking about technology, not as a set of discrete instruments, but as a kind of all-encompassing regime. And that was something that was impossible for me not to think about when I watched Videodrome. Grant writes, We close down on the fact that modern technology is not simply an extension of human making through the power of perfected science, but is a new account of what it is to know and to make, in which both activities are changed by their co-penetration. A little further along in the same essay, Quote, the mobilization of the objective arts and sciences at their apogee comes more and more to be unified around the planning and control of human activity. What must be emphasized is that the new technologies of both human and non-human nature have been the dominant responses to the crises caused by technology itself. This illustrates how technology is the pervasive mode of being in our political and social lives. So watching Videodrome for the fourth or fifth time, I initially found myself asking the question, you know, is this film progressive or reactionary? Is the work of David Cronenberg a softly reactionary expression of conservative ideas about the sexual revolution? Is there another possible interpretation, perhaps a more progressive one? After thinking about it some more and uh, discussing it with Will, I think my conclusion is that neither of those things is really the answer. If there is an interpretation of Videodrome, it's similar to the interpretation of technology and mass media captured in those two quotes I just read you from George Grant. Namely, the technology or mass media are not just a series of kind of discrete instruments. They represent a new stage of being that fundamentally and inexorably changes what it means to be a human being, for better or for worse. Technology is ultimately a regime so pervasive and hegemonic that Max Wren's various attempts to participate in and resist Videodrome ultimately lead him to the same conclusion, which is to transcend one form of existence and move on to the next. Long live the new flesh. Save.